Recorded live. Welcome, everyone. This is the Spiral Foundation's live talk, Evening with the Expert. This talk is being recorded and will be available on the TalkShoe website for one week. Participants may download this talk for your own use following the presentation. After that time, the talk will be available for sale on the Spiral Foundation website at www.thespiralfoundation.org. Participants may obtain a certificate for AOTA CEUs by following the instructions in your confirmation email and taking a short test on tonight's talk. This talk is the copyrighted property of the Spiral Foundation and may not be copied or distributed without permission. And tonight's topic in our sensory integration and mental, uh, mental health concerns series is addressing post-traumatic stress disorder in institutionalized and adopted children. And hello, everyone. Um, I'm Dr. Theresa Mae Benson, and I'm the executive director of the Spiral Foundation. And joining us tonight is Dr. Mary Margaret Windsor. Um, Dr. Windsor has over 40 years' experience working with children with sensory and neuromuscular problems. She is certified in the sensory integration and praxis tests, as well as uh, neurodevelopmental therapy. She received her doctoral degree from Boston University, where she was a faculty member teaching pediatrics. She was also a faculty member of Sensory Integration International and taught the SIP certification courses, uh, particularly sensory integration theory. Uh, for the past 20 years, she's been involved in humanitarian work, uh, primarily working as an occupational therapy consultant for the Worldwide Orphans Foundation. Um, she's had the honor and privilege to work in orphanages and institutions in numerous countries, um, and I only know a few of them, uh, but they <laughs> include such diverse areas as China, Russia, Romania, Azerbaijan, Jamaica, and Croatia. Uh, among others. Um, she often conducts initial needs assessments and facilitates capacity building through provision of knowledge and treatment strategies to the institution's professional and personal uh, per, uh, caregiver, caregivers, such as doctors, therapists, uh, and nurses. Um, she has extensive experience developing model programs for early intervention and interventions for vulnerable children who no longer w live with parents or families. So we're very delighted to have Dr. Windsor uh, with us this evening uh, to discuss uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma um, in these institutionalized and adopted children. And I just want to comment that um, listeners, please feel free to um, type in questions um, in your chat window at any time during the talk. Um, and I will convey those to Dr. Windsor. Um, those of you who are on the phone only uh, listening today, I have muted your line so that we cannot um, hear your background noise. Um, and I will unmute your phones um, at the end of the talk uh, and take questions from the phones. So uh, with that said, welcome, Dr. Windsor. Um, thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you, Teresa. I feel like I'm being interviewed by the OT Terry Gross. <laughs> Who is that? You don't know Terry Gross's interviews on NPR? No, I don't. We'll talk later. <laughs> okay. Um, so to start our discussion, um, Dr. Windsor, um, you have a very uh, extensive background in SI. 
and have been working with international adoptions and children and orphanages for a very long time. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in this area and uh, what some of your work has involved? I think it's a very unique um, application of OT knowledge. Um, I don't think we see a lot of OTs doing the kind of work that you're doing, and I think that uh, it's, it's pretty uh, uh, amazing and interesting work. So tell us a little bit how you kind of got into this. Well, thank you. Um, first of all, just a disclaimer, Jamaica and Croatia should be Haiti, Haiti excuse me, and Bulgaria. Oh, okay. I, got I should have caught that before <laughs> for you, and I apologize. But just in case anybody has questions about those two countries, I know nothing. Okay. Um, in, in 1995, I just completed my doctoral studies and had joined the faculty at BU. And Sharon Cermak who had been on Michael Jackson's Heal the World tour and seen children in Romania, was planning a trip for some faculty members and graduate students to go to Romania. I like to tell people as a joke that she was a backup singer for Michael Jackson. <laughs> but the truth is she was there as a professional and was asked to evaluate some of the children in orphanage number one. And when she came back, I think this was 92, in 1992, she was shocked. She said, you wouldn't have believed these kids. They didn't talk. They didn't want to touch toys. If we touched them, they withdrew. She said they had so many behaviors associated with defensiveness, and I just wonder about their sensory integration needs. And then, you know, these kids were adopted by American families, and guess what? Love wasn't enough and there were problems in families, and Sharon wrote an article for a family group about sensory integration and began to see children who had problems integrating into the family after being adopted. This family group really wanted to help kids who were left behind, and so the faculty members, myself, Sharon, and one other person, and graduate students paid our own way to Romania, and the family group paid for our transportation in-country into an orphanage. That's how we got started, and it was a pretty remarkable journey because once you see what's happening, it's, it's hard not to see it or not to do something about it. And what happened to me was uh, after a few years I had to leave BU, my family relocated to metropolitan Washington, D.C., and uh, Teaching at Towson University was quite a distance for me, and I needed to make a career change. And I was lucky enough to have met Jane Aronson, who's the founding director of Worldwide Orphans Foundation. And she took me on first as a volunteer and then as a job. And I want to acknowledge Sharon and Jane Aronson for their contributions to my work in international humanitarian work. So that's my story. No, I think that's great. And I think one of the things our listeners, um, many of which I'm sure are uh, younger therapists, um, but even those of us who've been around for a while, um, I think we really don't realize that this interest in international adoption really has only been around for about 20 years. Yeah. That prior to that time, yes, we, you know, there were some international adoptions, but it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. And I think there were a lot of families who 
you know, adopted some of these children and didn't really know what to do with them um, once they kind of got there. And I know that we here in the U.S. were really not aware of um, sort of the conditions that many Yeah, and the scandals. Them. You know, it was the fall of the Iron Curtain, which young therapists may not even be aware of, in 89 and, and the changing of dictatorships in post-Soviet countries that before that everything was a closed, closed society and and they weren't allowed to know anything about us and we didn't know much about them. And uh, there were many social, economic, and political reasons why these orphanages even existed. Right. And I know a lot of the work uh, that you guys did and I think a lot of the public awareness of problems with orphans um, and institutions um, really started with the Romanian um, orphanages. You're correct, uh, and, I think. And a lot of that really came from Michael Jackson's tour. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is, is kind of amazing to think, you know, where, where that all started from. And uh, the whole reign with Ceausescu and all that kind of stuff over there in Romania. And since then, you know, we're now seeing issues in many of these um, Eastern European countries, um, as well as China and, and other countries as well. So um, as we start to sort of talk about some of these things, let's talk just a little bit, first of all, um, about uh, these orphaned children. And I think, you know, we have our listeners here because we are um, getting many of these children internationally adopted. And parents are finding that they're facing a lot of unique challenges um, to the development of um, it, of their children. And um, these international children, you know, we have problems with orphan children in the U.S., but the international kids have even more difficult challenges. So um, you've had a chance to see sort of a very wide range of kids across countries. Can you tell us about some of the particular challenges to development in particular that you've seen uh, that therapists should uh, perhaps be on the alert for as they're working with some of these internationally adopted children in particular? Uh, and also tell us a little bit about um, what some of their living situations have been like, um, because I think that gives people a framework for where some of these problems might originate. Sure. Um, well, first of all, the countries that I've worked in have been primarily post-Soviet countries. Mm -hmm. And understanding the worldview of what's valuable, what's not valuable, you know, what happens if you're a child and what happens if you're a child with a problem, um, the poverty and so on, that in the beginning from 1995 to about 2001, 2002, I didn't see much difference among the countries, whether I was in Romania, Russia, Azerbaijan. You know, it really looked the same. It was almost scary to see the influence of the communist view and, and how these kids were treated. Uh, now we, we try to distinguish between what we call social orphans and the orphans of of. Uh, what we used to think of as, you know, kids whose parents had died or, or something like that. Because a lot of the children that I have seen have living parents or families, but because of poverty or even just the culture of, of the country, it's almost okay to bring the child to the orphanage to be fed and cared for rather than keeping the child in the family. 
um, sadly, I saw this view also in Haiti. And so I'm wondering if it's not just uh, the, the post-Soviet and the communist view, but also poverty that really makes it okay to give up children. And I think this is a, a big problem that we need to face in in politics and government and policy making because I think poverty really does contribute a lot to the development of social orphans. Um, when we first went in in '95, it was just incredible to view the the severe deprivation, and I'm talking about everything: sensory, motor, physical, social, emotional, and health. Uh, paper or paint peeling off the walls, uh, litter, glass bottles, etc., all over the outside. Kids couldn't go out because it was unsafe. And even on the streets of the cities, etc., lawns were not mowed. Uh, we saw animals tethered outside to keep the grass down, that kind of thing. But just the, the lack of resources and in infrastructure and so on, and you know, it was a very harsh, harsh society. I saw kids with no clothes, others lying in bed in their own urine and feces, and um, sometimes there'd be one caregiver to more than 20 or 30 kids. Uh, toilet training, when we first arrived, was done by having children less than one year old sitting on metal pots for hours until they uh, went to the bathroom. Um, for for a lot of kids, they were never removed from their cribs, and this has a lot of reasons besides not having enough caregivers to take kids out. In Romania, there's an actual cultural belief that kids shouldn't play on the floor because drafts can cause illness and so on and so forth. In fact, they don't, didn't even like to open windows, even if it were very, very hot outside. Um, when you see conditions like that, nothing is transparent and nobody is accountable and so the bad becomes worse and it's really very very sad when we viewed the feeding children were often left in their cribs with propped bottles and not picked up not held and they were fed with bottles for a long time with huge nipple holes so that it would lessen the feeding time and supposedly make things easier um, the shapes of their heads were very strange because they'd just lain in their cribs on one side or the other. Um, it, it was heartbreaking to us, but we have to remember that even in the society, people weren't trying to be cruel, and I'll talk later about why I think some of this occurred, but that people believed at that time that infants and toddlers didn't need much and didn't matter much. And we were encouraged to work with kids who were five or older because they could talk and they could learn more. So it was a strange philosophy. And what I will say, I, I went back uh, just this past February, and I didn't go to any institutions, but I couldn't believe the changes I saw in the infrastructure in the towns. It was really heartening. And as you probably know, Romania and other countries, because of EU mandates, are no longer able to are allowed to have orphanages. Oh, wow. Um, Didn't know that. Yeah, and and actually, I don't know if that's actual what's happening. They're not supposed to be there. We don't. We have some ideas as to what's happened to the babies, but um, a lot of the kids, through efforts of other organizations in the EU, have instituted foster care in group homes. Oh, wow. 
So things so, have changed a lot in 20 years. In oh, amazingly so. Yeah. Amazingly so. Thank goodness. Yeah, and I think that it, it's important for people to remember that these kids, like you said, the, the caregivers weren't meaning to be cruel or neglectful, That, but there were just so many other factors that went into how they viewed these kids. I know one thing we've talked about is the fact that you know, you talked about the poverty yeah. and the fact that for many of these kids, um, people who weren't in the orphanages actually could be resentful in that the kids were getting three meals a day and they had a shelter and a place to live and other people were, you know, out on the street starving. And yeah. So, well, the know, reality was they weren't getting three meals a day. Right. Well, <laughs> they were getting fed. Sometimes. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. So. You, you know, one of your questions related to that, but I'll respond now that, you know, when we saw the the caregivers, first of all, they were very poor and very poorly educated themselves. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't going to speak up and say, I need more help or I need to do this or that because they wanted to keep their jobs. And one of the things you learn about in that post-Soviet society or that, or in the Soviet society is you did not complain. Right. You did not complain. And so when we got to know the caregivers better, first of all, they really changed when we started doing little trainings for them. For instance, they said to us, um, our children don't talk. How come our children don't talk? And we began to to talk to them about oral motor and how the kids were just fed and gruel and that kids needed to have texture in their mouths and, and learn to chew and, and bite and so on. And we talked about the social things like um, everybody called the caregiver's mama and maybe teaching names and giving children more social, emotional opportunities, that kind of thing. And they really changed. And then some of the social, uh, the caregivers shared with us that they were afraid to love the children and take care of them. Because in the early uh, 90s and and uh, into the uh, maybe 2025, 20, not 25, but 2005, uh, the children were grouped by age. And so the baby house was from birth to three, and then there was another group from about three to five, and then seven to ten, that sort of thing. Well, we were at the baby house, and the caregivers felt that the next house was horrible. And they said, how can I love the babies here when I know what the future holds for them? So a lot of it was protection for their own feelings. And that gets into a lot of the attachment issues Yeah, uh, that we've seen with these children is, is that they, they didn't have those constant caregivers, and they didn't really have you know good attachment figures. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. And I remember Sharon Sharon Cermak really made big changes and influenced the the uh, doctors that we worked with. We were very lucky because we went for about 15 years to the same orphanage and wow. worked with the same personnel and became really embedded into the society in this one town. And uh, she convinced them not to feed the children in their cribs and you know, there were, there soon was a, a little dining room and play area for the kids. And that was a big step, you know, where they had their own bowls and they weren't drinking gruel. They were having food. 
and she convinced them that instead of dividing the kids according to ages, that there should be a mixture and have a constant caregiver so that they could have some sense of attachment and and develop attachment and the caregivers could bond better with them. So that, that was really exciting to see that. Oh. Well, and I think what we're seeing with um, a lot of these children is really, you know, some version of post-traumatic stress disorder, similar to, um, you know, what we see in adults who've experienced trauma. Now, um, many of our listeners are probably familiar with Bessel van der Kolk, um, who's been a real strong proponent of the developmental trauma disorder diagnosis um, for children. Um, who've experienced that uh, at long-term exposure to trauma or neglect. And um, how do you think that that uh, diagnosis applies to this particular group of children? Well, I was very excited when I saw your reference to to uh, Dr. Vanderklok. Is that how they oh, yeah, Kalk? Kalk? I shouldn't be able to say his name because my <laughs> grandson speaks Dutch. But uh, at any rate, um, I... My latest interest has been in refugees and uh, victims of torture because, you know, I live in metropolitan D.C. and there's a lot going on here. As I found out, there's a lot going on in Boston and in Connecticut. But I've been attending some trainings, and I heard on NPR an interview with – I hope I may call him Bessel because it's so much easier to say than Vanderklok. (laughs) So I will take that license and apologize to him later if I ever have the honor of meeting him. But he was interviewed on NPR about his book, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. Have you read that? I have it. I haven't had a chance to read it. I've sort of um, leafed through it. Yeah, I haven't finished it, but I was really excited about that book because it sets the stage for understanding trauma. And I just thought that it was very exciting to read some of his views and to understand that the neurostructures that he discusses in relation to trauma and other writers, too, who talk about trauma, you know, things like the the um, uh, limbic system and the amygdala and the hippocampus, the hypothalamus and, and all these relays and so on and subcortical functions, these are all the things that we've been studying in sensory integration. So we share a lot of the theory. And I just thought that we have so much to contribute as OTs and using an SI approach. And uh, I I just hope we'll have a chance sometime to, to share some of what we know. Because they talk about how the subcortical structures need to be recalibrated. And I think this is what OTSI does. Plus, besides helping with recalibrating these subcortical functions, we're experts on how to follow recalibration with purposeful activity and participation in everyday life. And that's what we can bring to the game. You know, we can really help with that. And and I think, too, when when he discusses um, trauma and others, too, they say one of the problems with trauma and why you – one might get post-traumatic stress is that when you have post-traumatic stress, it's like time is obliterated. There's not a beginning and there's not an end. There's no resolution. And it really interferes with all of your cognition. And you see, we in 
in OTSI, we have a beginning in our treatment. We have a development of a plan and sequencing. We have execution and an end. We give opportunity for transition. And it's all done pretty subcortically with, you know, yeah, there, there are some cognitive aspects, but it's just, I think, an opportune time to, to facilitate re recalibration and being able to move on in life. And I don't want to say get over this horrible thing because you never do, but to be able to manage stress. Right. Well, and I think that the way that we look at um, praxis yes. feeds into that. Um, and uh, just before we go on, somebody asked again about the name of the book. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, yes. And it, it's available in Kindle and um, hardcover through Amazon. Yes. Um, so, and if you go to our website, Spiral, and you click through our web store, um, then we get a per uh, portion of the proceeds if anyone buys it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. Well, I have really enjoyed reading his book. And, and I think, too, it's important to understand trauma from a perspective other than occupational therapy. Yeah, and he, he's also written a number of um, articles on developmental trauma disorder, mm -hmm. um, which you can access through um, Google Scholar. Um, a number of them are available um, you know, through Google Scholar. You can get the full text articles for mm -hmm. a number of his, his things there. Mm -hmm. in, in his book, too, he talks about things like uh, Porges' polyvagal theory, mm -hmm. and he really, I think he captures a lot of our understanding of the nervous system, and I was really excited because 800 years ago, I trained with Margaret Rood, <laughs> and she talked a lot about getting kids off sympathetic and into the parasympathetic for better movement, and I, I think it's really true that harnessing that autonomic nervous system subcortically is key to helping these kids manage the stress. And when we're talking about the stress, there's so many different pieces kind of involved in that, um, which brings me to my next question for you, which is, um, you know, we've talked a bit about some of the traumatic experiences that these kids have the conditions that they've kind of lived in. Um, and I think it's important for us to, to note here that although you've been talking about some of these things which, were, you know, were a while back, although they've improved, a lot of these conditions are still, I mean, there's a lot that's similar. There's a lot that's still not real great. I think um, that's right. So I think that, you know, when we see um, almost any child coming in from overseas, um, that we have to be cognizant that um, there's not going to be ideal, they're not coming from ideal conditions, that there's likely to be some kind of difficulty. Um, and I think that gets into part of what um, I wanted to talk about next is other kinds of traumatic experiences that you've seen um, and how do you think those kinds of things have affected their development and performance? Okay, well, any child who's been placed in an orphanage whether they're cognizant of it at all, um, has suffered abandonment. And um, I wanted to tell you just a couple little stories that I've seen. Uh, when I was in Romania, I was in the orphanage when a little girl who was about or maybe five or six was brought to the orphanage 
with her younger brother who was maybe three. And they were brought and left there because their mother had died and their father couldn't care for them. And the little girl was unconsolable initially, crying, crying, crying. And the little boy who was younger, he didn't know. He was happy. He was going on. And then she became, I mean, when I was there initially and she had just been brought there, she was unconsolable. I went back about six months later and the children were still there. And by this time, this little girl was extremely withdrawn. And I was shocked to see all the self-stimming behaviors that we saw in the kids who had been raised in the orphanage, you know, standing by herself, vacant look in the eyes, um, feet spread apart, rocking back and forth, not speaking. I was amazed at her regression in just six months. I'm, I'm happy to report that when I went back later, her father had come and taken both kids from the orphanage. He had remarried and, and had someone to care for them. But that, to me, was just amazing what it could do to her nervous system and, and uh, just her behavior and so on, and the difference between a six-year-old and a three-year-old. Then when I was in Haiti, I was at an orphanage, and I saw these two little girls all dressed up. They were in looked like communion clothes, and they were with their mother, and I don't speak Creole, but there was a lot of angry voicing and emotiveness going on between the mother and one of the orphanage caregivers. And one of the little girls was crying, crying, crying. After lunch, no, not after lunch, a couple hours later before lunch, um, the mother was gone, and the two kids were still sitting there. One, The younger one was just kind of looking around and not really paying attention, but the older one was crying, crying, crying. Nobody went up to her. Nobody consoled her. And, of course, I was, you know, an American, and so the caregivers brought me my lunch. And uh, I said, well, what about the children? And they said, well, they're not ready to eat yet. And I said, well, what about the crying? Can you, you know, should we do something? And the caregiver said, no, life is hard, and she's got to learn. This is where she lives now. And the caregiver then explained to me that the children had been brought to the orphanage and had been abandoned by their mother after living in a home and because the mother and father could no longer feed them and they knew that the children would be educated in the orphanage. But this little girl was heartbroken and and just the worldview of, of not consoling her. And, of course, I went over and tried to console her and gave her some of my lunch, fed her, gave her a cookie. Meanwhile, they came over and brought lunch for the other child and, you know, was hugging her and got her to stop crying for a little bit. And, you know, you don't have to speak a language as long as you have the right emotional overtones and sounds that worked. But that just really broke my heart. And it reminded me that societies in developing countries and poor countries can be very, very harsh, and that part of my job has been to remind people of gentleness and compassion. And, you know, I've been lucky to have been able to do this. Well, and I think that speaks to what, you know, when we're working with these kids, sometimes, although, you know, they've been adopted into loving, caring families, they may carry over some of those problems. And sometimes we just need to be with the kids. 
Yes, I think you're right that just being present. So so for the traumatic experiences, I've talked about abandonment, but I also want to remind people that these kids often have pre-morbid medical histories for both the mother and the child that we may or may not know about. And uh, getting a good history is sometimes difficult for many, many reasons. So you can't always trust the history you have. And it's not just that they're being adopted by foreigners. I saw a child in Bulgaria who was adopted by a Bulgarian family, and his history was horrible. He was premature. His mother was on drugs. Plus, she had an STD. He had to be treated for syphilis. And uh, he wasn't adopted till he was about 10 months old. But the parents had never been counseled about this. It never told what some of the implications might be. So pre-morbid medical histories are, are often the case with these kids. And then the last thing that I think we have to acknowledge is that some kids suffer abuse, and not always by the caregivers, sometimes by the other children. It's kind of interesting what the social system develops like in these places. Right. That's why we need better transparency. But you can see why all of these things are are traumatic, and these are just a few. Right, and I think um, one of the things that there's been some research looking at is when kids are adopted. And that's what yes. Sharon had actually um, looked at um, was whether or not kids were adopted before or after six months, three months, four months. Yeah, six I months. Think. Six months. Six months. That's the magic number. And not just Sharon Thermax literature, but it's been uh, documented by Rudder and others in England. And uh, it's just pretty sure that if you can get a child early and you have an informed, loving home that, that these things can be mitigated. But um, kids who are older have a poor prognosis or may have more needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's important, too, because we don't want parents to feel like, oh, the kid's older than six months, they're, they're you know, it's, oh, well, give it up the ghost, you know. Um, yeah. We're not, I'm doomed to having a child with issues. Um, because that may not be the case, but it's just m- much more likely. Yeah. It, yeah. It, you know, it's like it's un- undoable to uh, overcome, but it's just it may be harder. Yeah. I think that, you know, I haven't actually worked for any adoption agencies just because adoption has been such a hot topic and I try to stay away from the political aspects that may keep me out of a country or or make me be seen in a different light. But if I were a parent and thinking about adoption, I would choose an agency that had ongoing support and training for me as a parent. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And I remember seeing uh, a, a Caucasian family, I don't know if what nationality they were, but they had adopted this little child in China, and you have to stay there for X amount of time or something. And we were in this bookstore, and the child was in a beautiful carriage, and the mother and father were talking to each other and looking at books and whatever, and for the 20 or 30 minutes that I was in the same bookstore, I never saw them once interact with the child or get the child involved in what he or she was seeing. 
And I thought, gee, that's really too bad because this is an opportunity for attachment and bonding. And these parents really haven't learned yet how to parent. Right. And so I think that especially, I think all parents need training. I certainly could have used a little when I was, you know, a young mother. But I think it's imperative for adoptive families to have some training and support because you want to make an optimum situation for the family. Well, and I think that's a really um, important point, which leads into my next question, um, which is what kinds of roles do you think OTs can play with working with these kids, whether they're here in the States as adopted children or whether they're overseas um, still in, in, their, or in their, you know, the orphanages or the homes there. Um, but I, I, I agree. I think it's something that we don't often think about as OTs, that training um, and education of the adopted parent um, on how to interact with these children who are really not the same kids necessarily as the kids that you're going to get either here in the U.S. or your own natural child because of their unique circumstances, that having that education and ongoing support, at least I would say for the first few years, yeah. uh, is, is really important. And I think it's, it's something I've never heard of really happening very much. Um, you know, there's certainly a number of um, adopt, adopted groups, you know, family groups and things like that, but I don't see a lot of structure from the OT world um, where we could, could really, I think, give a lot of feedback to people and, and provide a lot of good information. So that's a whole other area for us to be looking at someday. Yeah, I think that, you know, our foot in the door is EI services. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of these other um, groups operate on a shoestring budget. And I know, especially in humanitarian work, they don't want to pay us. Right. And, oh, they'd love to have us come and volunteer. But um, I've tried to make the case, and sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not. But I try to make the case that uh, having a paid member of the team who knows the ethos of the group you're working for, who who is more than an OT, who can expand the views of the group, that kind of thing, is really important. And just, you know, managing other volunteers and keeping true to the mission. Right. It, it gets, you know, it, it's a tremendous opportunity for the group, the, o, the um, ORG or NGO, which people don't know those initials. It's, it's for nonprofits. And in other countries, it's almost always affiliated with, with humanitarian work. In our country, the U.S., it's really just a tax thing that it's not for profit or something, but humanitarian work falls under ORGs or, or um, that, those other structures. But, uh, you know, it's just so important to have OT. I, I can't imagine why people aren't hiring OTs left and right. We've got to really problem solve this. Right. <laughs> so what other kinds of, of roles do you think um, – OTs can, can play when, when we work with these kids? Well, you know, I made a list of some things. And, and the first thing is by providing some direct service and actually demonstrating 
how kids change. I've done that throughout my career. I just did it uh, for an OT, a new OT program in Bulgaria, uh, excuse me, Romania, and they had a little boy that that uh, inconsolable with autism, yada yada. But anyhow, I did a demonstration of treatment, and the other OT who was with me on the trip did a demonstration of OT treatment with another child. It was very, very powerful to the other professionals who were watching and seeing how we got the kids to play and interact. So direct service for sure. Um, I think OTs make great team members and that we can do a lot in an OT session that supports other disciplines. And we, we always should think about opportunities in real-life experiences for our kids, which is pretty easy for us as occupational therapists and not so easy for other disciplines. Um, I think that showing how OTs prepare for activities and do task analyses and understanding what it takes to do something is tremendously helpful and can be very instructive to other disciplines. Uh, <clears throat> we already discussed support to the children and the caregivers, but what we can do through this is we empower them through knowledge. And when they see the child succeeding in real life, that's even more powerful. And so by training and not just to professionals and parent groups, but to caregivers, the people who are actually working with the kids, you know, it can be helpful. And that we can do research. We need to contribute to the knowledge base for, for these kids. And, you know, even, even in the clinical level, a good case study that that will show change in a child. Like one of the things I often do, if somebody wants to know about sensory integration, I'll go in and I'll videotape children in the orphanage and videotape them during treatment activities or, or evaluation activities and then put together a PowerPoint that's almost like a little case study about, you know, what what's the theory driving the treatment, you know, how do we evaluate the child? What are we doing to do the child? And what do we expect to see at the end? That's, I think, very helpful. And then my last statement is to remember that we are the masters of the ordinary. <laughs> <laughs> and then the ordinary day is the, your entree into social participation. Everybody talks about participation, but I think a good OT is the one who really understands how to provide opportunities and in that, I want to stress, and we've talked about this, you and I, before, developmental affordances. Yeah. It's through play and three-dimensional interaction and that subcortical work that kids develop affordances and awarenesses and perceptions, the bases that they, they miss so desperately in, in an orphanage or an institution. And I can't... You know, when I come home from one of these trips, I remember just recently sitting in a restaurant and watching just a typical family with their child and realizing that that child in that restaurant had more opportunities and experiences than some of the kids that I've worked with have in, I mean, this child in an hour in the restaurant had more than a child that I've seen who has spent days in an institution. Wow. It, 
it's, not, it's, it's pretty sad. sad. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important, too, to, for therapists um, who are listening to remember that, you know, these things that we're talking about are not only appropriate for these kids that are still stuck overseas, but are also important for those kids who are coming over here, you know. Absolutely. I think one of the reasons people are listening to our series is uh, I've got these kids that I'm working with that I know have um, trauma and attachment issues. They're, they're adopted or, um, you know, they're, they've, they've got these, these trauma issues and I don't know what to do with them. Um, or, you know, how do, I, how do I deal with this? And I think part of it is, you know, it's, you've got to use your SI, your basic SI knowledge. And, yeah. And don't don't necessarily feel like it's they're they're different in in a way you know it's like you got to go back to that core OT knowledge like you said of task analysis of play of getting the child engaged in those everyday activities but also you know knowing your core sensory integration knowledge absolutely you know and, and partnering with somebody like um, uh, better, you know, because these kids need to have some other help besides OT too. Right. What and, help can you get? Yeah, get get them the right help. But um, you know, I, I was talking to an OT recently, and she was just a regular OT mom, and she said, "Sometimes I feel sorry for my kids because I'm an OT and I know so much about some of the problems." And I said. Do you know there is nothing wrong with informed parenting? Your children are lucky you're an OT, and you are informed. And I feel that way about the parents I deal with of kids who have been adopted or caregivers overseas, that the more informed they are, the better able they are to reframe the child's behavior and to understand you know, we're all just trying to survive in this world. And for this kid who's internationally adopted or has been in an institution, it's a tough survival. And uh, helping them to, helping the families to understand this. And, and you know, when kids have post-traumatic stress, just like adults, uh, sometimes the flashbacks or the stressors are no longer attached to the real event that happened. Right. And and can't be predicted. So a parent might think, oh, I did this, and then the child reacted this way. It may really not have been what the parent did. We don't know. We have so much to learn about traumatic stress and, and so on. I, I said it reminds me a little bit about dyspraxia and apraxia, how we learn so much from the adult literature in apraxia when we began to recognize dyspraxia in our kids. I think the same will be true for traumatic stress and recovery because we're learning a lot from the adult literature. And, you know, children aren't adults, but we're still learning from the literature, and and we should continue to do so. I I think one of the things I know um, I've heard from our therapist is I think the thing that is um, sometimes most frightening um, for the therapist working with these kids um, is that idea of the flashbacks and the triggers, that they're often really afraid of doing things with kids because they're afraid they're going to trigger um, a flashback or they're going to trigger an episode and that the child's going to react to that and they're not going to know 
first of all, what, how to manage the child when they go into some of these situations, but also I think feeling guilty that they've they've triggered something. Yeah. Um, and I imagine that's something you've probably run into um, over the, over the last number of years. I mean, I I think that sometimes it's impossible to avoid. Yeah, but you know. Um... To be honest with you, I haven't seen a lot of that, but I started thinking a lot about it after reading The Body Keeps the Score. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, you know, it made me more reflective on these things. But what I'm thinking is that when we're doing therapy, a lot of times uh, when we're really um, with the child and not imposing on the child, but we're we're co co uh co yes uh, that that those kinds of things don't happen as frequently as you might expect, and I'm wondering if and in in the book it was talking about how the problem with with reactions to post traumatic stress is time, no beginning, no end, and all that, but also no present. And so when we are with the kids and in the present in our clinics, Mm. that kind of screens out the potential for these flashbacks because we've got the kid involved. You know what I'm saying? I do. That when we're we're, we're doing good SI, or good OT because OT is supposed to be collaborative. Right. Oh, if we're really collaborative, and I was wondering, well, maybe that's why I haven't seen this so much, because if we, I use the SI and some of the NDT, too, to to get into the collaboration mode, because, of course, at first, they're not going to collaborate with me. Right. But um, once I'm in there, it's pretty safe for them and for me, because we're in the presence. And then the other piece of it is that when a child is happy, you can be, or reacts in a happy way, you can pretty much think he's in the present. Mm -hmm. And so to really celebrate the happiness in daily life, because that means that the person's with you. That's a really good point, Nancy. That's really, really important. Um, I hope so. I think so. And I, I think that's not something that I really heard other people talk a lot about. Um, is sort of that that concept, you know. I mean, we talk about they talk a lot about co-regulation and and that kind of thing, but I don't think we really uh, emphasize this thought that you know we need to be really be with the kids and really be with them in the present. Uh, I think that's an important point. Um, and I think that brings me to my next question for you, okay. <laughs> which are, um, which I think we've, we've talked a little bit about, but uh, therapists are always hungry and eager for some specific kinds of treatment strategies um, or techniques um, or approaches that a therapist might use to address some of these sensory and mental health problems. Um, what are some of the, the strategies that you particularly used um, that you think are, are helpful for people to know about? Okay. Um, well, the first thing when therapists are thinking about strategies and stuff, in my work, the first thought I had was culture because there's just so much information about culture and so many words, you know, competence, understanding, cultural humility, you know, all this kind of stuff. 
Um, everybody's talking about that. But in every single discussion of culture, the big thing that comes up is the first thing you have to do is to know yourself. And we talk about that all the time in OT, you know, therapeutic use of self. And so I would say reflection, know why you're doing what you're doing and why you're doing it with whomever you're doing it with. That's the first thing. And then I was very, very relieved. Um, A couple years ago I did a presentation for my NGO in St. Petersburg in some work we'd been doing in early identification and the main one of the uh, keynote speakers, and I can't remember which one he is now, and I didn't have time to look it up, but he said that we need to remember that there are as many intracultural differences as there are intercultural differences. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to know all the rules. Mm-hmm. And that if you're humble and caring and warm and and you're showing generosity. People are forgiving and will help you move in the right direction if you're making a mistake. So be open to whomever you're working with. Try to learn some of the rules or be cognizant, but I think it's even better to watch their faces and to to ask them, is this okay? You know, question them while you're doing your treatment and be able to be reflective with them about what's happening so you can understand. Um, that gets into that point about being flexible. Yes. Treatments. You know, being yes. able to really go with the flow and to follow the child's lead. Um, yes. Don't you think? Yes, absolutely. And being flexible and having no expectations as to what you're going to have to work with or what the results will be. Right. And it, it can change so dramatically in these kids from day to day, too. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I went to a – the other thing about OTs, you know, initially when you talked about sensory integration and mental health to me, I'm so old school that it was like, what? <laughs> you know, what does that mean? But the truth is, when you know, I've been a therapist for 46 years. And when I became a pediatric therapist, mental health referred to a venue. Mm. And if you were a pediatric therapist, that meant you automatically dealt with the social, emotional, et cetera. And I feel like I've always tried to be a good pediatric therapist and aware of things other than just movement or sensory. You know, in 72, I got my master's degree in education and counseling, and people said to me, why are you doing that? You know, you work in a rehab center. And I said, because I work with school kids, and I don't know about schools, and I don't know, you know, about some of their problems. And so on. So pediatric therapists, I think, have always been very holistic. But recently I went to a a meeting with mental health OTs in my area, and I have to tell you, I was gobsmacked when this therapist told me that uh, in her setting, she's the OT there, they work with um, uh, people with feeding disorders, eating disorders, and they're not allowed to touch the patients because they don't want to trigger, you know, 
past memories or something like that. I said, you're not allowed to touch a patient? I, mean, I, I was so surprised. Oh. I think in my old age, things are surprising me more because that really surprised me. But I have to tell you one other thing. I just recently went to a training with psychologists, and um, there was a student there, and we were taking turns taking notes. And when it was her turn, she said to me, could I borrow your pen? And I looked at her. I said, you don't have a pen? And she said, no. And I said, you probably need paper, too. She said, yes. And then I had to ask the question, how could you come to a training without a paper and a pencil or anything to write on? (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, everybody thought I was really mean, but I was just amazed, amazed. And it wasn't like she was writing on a tablet. (laughs) You know, she hadn't. But anyhow, enough of me. (laughs) Do you have have any other um, treatment strategies uh, or techniques to refer people to? I'm going to tell you, and it sort of goes back to some of our other stuff. Um, When we talked about, uh, um, let me look back at my notes. When we we talked about attachment and so Mm -hmm. on, And this is my theory because I think in every treatment session, you're developing a therapeutic bonding for you and attachment for the child, okay? And that's part of the the collaborativeness of treatment for me anyhow. And people, I'm just speaking from my own little world. And I think it's so powerful to use vestibular input and deep touch. I just treated this little boy who had autism in Romania. He was five years old, and he had never been out of his house until they brought him to the school for children with autism three weeks before. Wow. And so they they brought him into the room, and he was, oh, oh the uh, therapist who was preparing me said, now he does scratching and biting. And um, I said, yeah, a lot of these kids are self-abusive. And she says, no, to you. Uh (laughs) I said, oh, okay. So anyhow, they brought this little boy in the room, and he was crying, weeping, whatever. And I made a connection by holding him, moving him, then playing with him, and gently throwing him down and, you know, sort of rough house things. A lot of the three-dimensional play that we do in, in OTSI. And by the end of the session, he was lifting his arms to me. He had stopped crying. They didn't see any of the self-abusive behaviors to himself or abusive behaviors to me. He was laughing. He played with bubbles. And I think the power was in the vestibular and deep-touch play, three-dimensional. But it helps with all of that regulation and it pulls yeah. any of those subcortical areas that we were talking about. Yeah, um, absolutely. Before. And I, I think, you know, you and I have talked before about using our tools in our toolkit. And yep. you know, being really holistic therapists that the needs of these any given child are different. Yeah. Uh, and sort of what do you what have you seen with that kind of thing? Well, I think that the basic needs may not be that different right. when you're working subcortically. 
and that it's it's what you follow it up with that you really see the individual differences with the kids. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, and I think, um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is some of these, uh, you know, some alternative therapies can be helpful. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I absolutely. Know, I do a lot of cranial sacral work, which I think is can be really, really powerful yes. uh, for kids. But I think, you know, it all depends on what you as the therapist are comfortable with and trained in. That's exactly what I, one of my talking points was. Use alternative therapies that support OT and in which you have been trained, and they should allow you to see a difference in the child that's positive. And so, so if you have that training, go for it. Um, time's uh, really about up. Um, so the last thing I just wanted to touch base with were, are there any trainings or resources or references in particular that you recommend where therapists can get more information um, on uh, these internationally adopted kids or institutionalization or trauma? Yes. there's. If, if people Google internationally adopted kids, there are some... There are a couple of very good websites, and I'll send them to you. I think I sent them to you. And, yeah, uh, I have them here. Yeah, but, and Google Scholar. And also, besides the book, The Body Keeps the Score, there's another book that I'm reading, and it's called The Evil Hours. It's about a, an adult with post-traumatic stress syndrome who was a reporter oh, in, wow. in the war. And, and it's interesting because he has post-traumatic stress that, you know, I, I really – and getting a different view of, or a better understanding, I should say. And I also think the journal Zero to Three, they have some excellent, excellent editions on stress, um, trauma, uh, adoption, um, separation, a lot of things. And I love that journal. Yeah, I have also found that they've got a lot of really good um, information there. Yeah. Uh, What I'm doing here is, um, for those of you who are on your computers, I have um, sent you uh, and posted in the chat window the two websites that Missy referred to. Um, And I'm just going to read them off. Uh, I'll read them slowly so people who are just listening can write them down if they like. Um, or you can catch it later on from the recording of this talk. It's uh, www.ncbi.nlm.nih.gov, and then it's the um, uh, greater than sign, PMC302319. And I'm assuming this is an article by B. Hawk. Um, Yeah, he's the one who did it in 2010. Yeah, in 2010. And then the second one is www.ncbi.nlm.gov, greater than PubMed. And the author is K.L. Wick, W-I-I-K. Yeah, that's what it it said on my uh, Google search. Yeah, 2011. Um, and then the book that uh, we've talked about is uh, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And that's um, Van der, D-E-R, Kolk, K-O-L-K. And Missy referred to The Evil Hours, 
by David J. Morris mm-hmm. and Zero to Three. Uh, oh, and I just thought of something else. Um, Charlie Zena, who does attachment stuff down at um, Tulane University, did a project in Romania with the uh, guy who does uh, Partners in Health from Harvard and some other people in attachment. I I forgot to look this up, but uh, we I'll look it up and send it to you. But it's about the project they did about developing foster care in Bucharest in Romania, and that might be of interest to people. It just came out. Okay, great. Well, I think those are great resources. Um, So our time's about up now. Um, We can take um, questions now. Um, If people have questions, you can type them into the chat window if uh, you have anything. Um, We have one um, listener uh, calling in on the phone. uh, our phone listener could please mute your phone unless you have a question. Then we will not get your background noise, and I'm going to unmute you so that uh, you have an opportunity to ask questions if you would like. Um, I will mute it if I'm getting background noises again. But anyone else, if you have last-minute questions for uh, Dr. Windsor, please feel free to um, type those in, and we'll take those now. And uh, my caller... Uh, I've got you unmuted if you have questions. Just want to say thank you to Missy. This is Judy. Oh, hi. Hey, Judy. Thanks. <laughs> okay. I'll call you tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> okay. Questions, anybody? Okay. Um, can, can I just I, say if Mary Fontaine is on, hi. <laughs> okay. She and I were therapists together many, 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 many years ago, and she said she was going to try to listen in on this. Okay. Um, so we have someone who wants to know, how can one get involved in an organization or group of OTs to continue this kind of work? Boy, um, I think we should start an OT NGO. There you <laughs> Call go. me. <laughs> um, I may be too old and too tired, but um, I, I would love to see something – of us that can stand alone and raise money and then supply OTs to do this kind of work. Um, I'm, I'm not sure quite how to make it happen. And But I'll tell you another group that, that needs our services, and that's refugees. Mm-hmm. And if we could brainstorm to write a grant, because now they're really worried about homegrown terrorism, oh, what wow. could be better than having OTs work with new refugees and families and helping them to acclimate and become part of society so that so that we can be better citizens of the world. Right. Now, I'm assuming there are a number of NGOs and uh, organizations that people might be able to volunteer for or get Yep, Save the Children, Mercy Corps, uh, uh, Bill Gates, the Gates Foundation, um, Catholic Charities, um, UNICEF. Peace Corps? Peace Corps, yeah. Well, okay. Peace Corps usually makes you do things like teach English, but you can you can do a lot of things teaching English. Okay. You have to be creative sometimes. All right. Anyone else have questions? All right. Well, we'll wrap up then. Um, our time is up now, and we'd like to thank you all for uh, joining us. 
Um, watch our website and our mailing list for more details. And thank you very much, Dr. Windsor. Um, thank you, Dr. May Benson. Oh, thank you. And thank you to all of our participants for joining us um, for our live talk, Sensory Integration and Mental Health Series. Uh, watch our website, www.thespiralfoundation.org, for our next live talk presentation and to obtain copies of past programs. And um, have a wonderful evening, everyone. Teresa, will you stay on?